So yeah, we're going to continue to talk about the church today. And we had a brief overview of the church last week. And then we're going to talk today about the church and the covenant. Church and the covenant. But first, let us pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another time that we can get together and we can talk about uh, the body of Christ, uh, the people that you have charged to take dominion over the world and to uh, proclaim your kingdom to the nations. Father, help us today as we as we learn about the covenant and the church, church's involvement with that, and how we may best serve you in knowing this. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so the church and covenant. <clears throat> so what is a covenant? Brief review. In your own words, Addie. Part of it, kind of, yeah. I know who it is in my mind. Yeah, Lucas. An agreement that comes with cursings and blessings. Yeah, very good, very good. So it's a bond between a sovereignly administered bond between um, someone who is higher, like in hierarchy, and then someone who's lower. So in God's covenant, who is the one who administers it? God. God does right, and then uh, we receive it. So how does the church fit in with this? Well, in the beginning, uh, the church uh, established its covenant with Adam, right? And God established his covenant with Adam, and he established his covenant with Noah, too. And the type of covenant that God established with them is called a dominion covenant, right? So man was authorized to subdue the earth, uh, but he was only allowed, he couldn't subdue it in his own way. He wasn't permitted just to subdue it any way he pleased. He had to subdue it under the overall authority and law of God, right? So uh, God also covenanted with Abram, right, or Abraham. And later on, God changed his name to Abraham, and uh, he instituted the sign of the covenant uh, through a certain way. What did he do to establish this sign what was the sign of the covenant with Abraham? Circumcision. That's right. So he covenanted with Jacob also. And how is Jacob related to Abraham? Son or grandson. Grandson, right. Jacob was Abraham's grandson. And then he also changed Jacob's name. Who do you change Jacob's name to? Israel. Israel. That's right. And so, and he promised to bless all of Jacob's efforts. So... Let me think who else God covenanted with. He covenanted with Moses, right, and with the children of Israel, and he promised to bless them if they conformed themselves to his law. Uh, but he also said that he would curse them if they disobeyed. And so the covenant was a treaty. What's a treaty? Like an agreement. Like a peace agreement, right? And it involved mutual obligations and mutual promises. And God, who was the sovereign administer of this covenant, he offers his, his peace treaty to a pre-selected group of people, uh, men and women, and then they accept its terms of surrender. Okay? So the treaty has mutual obligations associated with it. So the first one is blessings and protections from the king, 
And then on the other side, it requires obedience on the part of his servants. Uh, It also spells out the terms of judgment, which are the curses from the king in case the servants rebel. So, and, and this same covenant is extended to the church today. It's the same covenant, and it covers the institutional church. And it also applies to whole nations that agree to conform their laws with God's standards. And Paul wrote this in Galatians 6.16. He said this, And as for all who walk by this rule, that's the rule of the covenant, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God. What does that mean? What's he, who's he talking about here? The Israel of God. Is he talking about the nation? talking about the church right the church so he's saying and as for all who walk by this rule peace and mercy be upon them and upon the church of god so obviously the church is a part of this covenant Uh, he also said this to the gentiles at ephesus in ephesians 2 verses 11 to 13 if you just want to take notes there it says therefore remember that at one time you gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul is saying that these Gentiles, they were at one time total strangers to the covenant. They were totally out uh, of this covenant of of promise, this covenant of grace. Does that mean that they weren't attached to any covenant at all? Yes or no? No? Okay, so if they're not, if if, uh, it means they weren't attached to any covenant at all, what covenant were they attached to? Sin with the devil? Uh, yes, in a sense. But uh, who... Are, I had this conversation in 7th and 8th this morning. Uh, who is Jesus... Uh, who, right, for, for those who are saved and are in covenant with God, who is their covenantal head? Oh, uh, Jesus. Jesus. Who is the unrepentant sinner's covenant head? Adam. Were you going to say the same thing? Themselves. Themselves? Yeah, because they're making, uh, they're making up their own rules and stuff. Right, but there's still someone, even if they were born into this world, uh, what we would call like not sinning at all, like even babies that, uh, you know, are before they're good or bad, God said about Esau that I hated him. On what basis can God say that he hated Esau based on his who represents him? Who represents the ones that aren't in Christ? No, Adam does. Yeah, Adam does. I think so. I don't have a certainty of that, but it, it's, it seems as if they repented. They did put on the clothes that God provided for them to wear. So they just didn't say, oh, no, we'll, we'll stay naked and unashamed. They were truly ashamed, so, and they put on the clothes that God made for them. So, and, and, of course, you know, uh, the, uh, Jesus did come from their line, so I have a reason to believe that they're, they're saved. But they're not saved because of themselves. They wouldn't have taught their kids about God if they weren't. And I mean, I guess he still could have like sinned. that jerk. God created everything and created us. He he's not painting. He never painted God in a negative light. Yeah. So I would think that they're saved, but they're not saved based on their own covenant position. He's not saved because of anything he's done. 
Now, even the first Adam gets put under the second Adam for salvation if they are saved, right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It gets kind of confusing there, but yeah. So at any rate, uh, we and Gentiles were strangers to this covenant of promise. We were covenanted through the first Adam, but God has made a new covenant with us Gentiles, fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah 31. And as Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 10 says, it says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put their laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So there's a big difference between the the first covenant, the covenant of old uh, with Israel, which is all a part of the same covenant. I guess a better way to put it is there's a difference between the first initial blossoming of the covenant and then the second one. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the <clears throat> big difference is what was the where what was the law put on with Israel? Was it put on the heart? Was it put on the mind? Didn't seem like it was. What was it put on instead? What were the Ten Commandments written on? Stones. stones right. It was written on on stone. So it was external. It was outside of the hearts and minds. Right? Does that mean that God didn't put the law into anyone's hearts and minds back then? No, we can't say that. We can't say that because there really were people, even before the Ten Commandments were written down, that followed the law of the Lord. And they were saved uh, you know, by grace through faith. So we can't say that. But now, it, this new establishment, administration of the covenant is so much better because now every person that, uh, that knows the Lord and is uh, in covenant with him, they're going to have the law put on their hearts. They're going to have the law put in their minds. That means they're going to want to please the Lord by obeying the law. They're going to have it in their hearts. So that's a big difference. So you think that gives us more hope or less hope than Israel did? More, right? Because God is actually giving us the means, uh, more of the ability to actually do what he says through the Holy Spirit. So that's a big deal. Um, and, you know, one of the most effective ways that Satan has tricked converts to Christ is to convince them that they're not under God's covenant. Uh, despite their own baptisms, uh, which is the sign of God's covenantal relationship with individuals and the church in the New Testament. See, Satan has convinced many people today, uh, Christians, I might add, that they have no such thing as a covenant with God. I mean... Uh, despite what God's word actually says in the New Testament. Uh, and this is really terrible because if there's no covenant, then that means what? There's no peace treaty. And if there's no peace treaty, then there aren't any terms of peace. And if there aren't any terms of peace, then God's way of ruling and running the world through dominion is gone. Why is that? Because everybody's at war with everybody else. God's at war with, with the, everybody on earth. People are at war with each other, and people are murdering and killing each other, and no dominion can be done if there aren't any people on earth, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no subduing is ever going to take place if everybody's dead. So, <clears throat> but the problem is, is this lack of covenantalism is taught in so many churches today. 
Uh, and, you know, if there's no covenant with the Gentiles, then the dominion covenant is gone. And we don't have any guidelines from God's law that apply to us. And if we're not in covenant with God, then all of the moral, all the judicial, all the dominical guidelines and laws for us to follow are gone. And without God's law, I said this earlier this year, we don't have any tools for dominion. Because I said earlier this year that law is our tool for dominion. And without the tools of dominion being used by God's people, Satan and his earthly kingdom, they don't have the same sort of pressure that it would have if, uh, if men were actively trying to subdue the earth to God's glory. So that means the kingdom of Satan, they don't have any pressure to, to be able to get their act together and get straight. This, and so really, Satan's kingdom, in some sense, externally, at least in the United States, we can say it seems like it's growing, right? Has our nation as a whole corporately become closer to God or farther away from God? Seems like it's farther away from God. At least that's what the news reports, right? Um, has the White House become closer to God over the last 150 years or farther away? Seems like it's been farther away, and we can see that. Um, we can see that just looking at the, the rate of the murder of babies. Have more babies been murdered over the past 150 years or less? More. Way more. Yeah, millions upon millions. So this has been the story of the American church uh, for over the last uh, 150 years. And since we've lost, we've lost covenant. We've lost the doctrine of God's peace treaty with man through covenant. And now we've lost the vision of dominion. That's why Satan's kingdom seems to be expanding in some sense. And it seems like God's, the, the church at least, is retreating. Uh, because we've lost this vision of dominion. We've lost covenant. And we haven't been acting like ambassadors of peace, marching into rebellious kingdoms, giving the terms and condition of the peace treaty. And uh, the rebels don't know that their king has received a death wound. The rebels. You know, who's, who is the rebels' master? The devil. The devil, right. Exactly. They don't know that Jesus has defeated their master at the cross 2,000 years ago. They don't see that. They don't see that by how the church is acting. Does the church even know that their king has defeated the devil at this point, at least in America? Doesn't seem like it. No. And so really we've been acting like people who are trying to lead the rebels out of uh, this supposedly powerful visible kingdom led by this wonderful king, the devil, and instead, hey, Y'all, I know y'all are, y'all have a wonderful king and he's very powerful and he's doing all sorts of wonderful things. But why don't y'all come to this powerless kingdom where our king, loser king Jesus is over here not doing anything in the world until he comes back until, you know, after his second coming. Uh, Why don't y'all come and join that team? Do you see anybody joining that team? Not really. (laughs) No, who would want to join that type of team? Let's go from a winning king to a loser king. Well, there you go. That's true. There is an element of, of there, there's a whole other element to this too. But I'm just trying to make the point. The church says that Jesus is king and he rules, but they don't act like it. They, act, they say he's a winner, but they act like he's a loser. They say that the devil's a loser, but everybody in the world sees, well, it seems like the devil's doing pretty, fun, pretty good right now. So why would I want to join that team? 
right? It, it's as if the spies sent out by Israel into Canaan had been told to find people like Rahab, who Rahab wasn't living in some shack. She was living in a nice house, right? Hey, Rahab, come out, get out of your mansion and come live with us in the woods. You know, that's what that's, that's saying, right? So without the covenant, you would think that Christians are trying to get non-Christians to go live in the wilderness forever. But is that the case? No, that's not reality. No, our Lord has not only established a new covenant, but it's a new and a better covenant. And you can read all about that in Hebrews 8 through 10. I'm not going to read that today. It's, it's long passages, but read that in your spare time. You can see just how new and how much better this covenant is. Uh, Hebrews 8, chapters 8, 9, and 10. And if you read those, you're going to see that it turns out that God didn't get rid of the concept of covenant and this covenantal law order. But you wouldn't know that from the majority of the sermons preached in churches these days. Okay. So let's talk about the two sacraments of the church. What are they? Well, bread and wine are the elements of one. I know, I know. Communion and baptism, right. Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, let's talk about baptism first. This is probably, all, this is probably the only one we're going to talk about uh, today. Um, <clears throat> baptism. So there's been a lot of talk about baptism at Christ Church lately. So probably what I will tell you will be, much of it will be review. But I think it's good to get review. It's good to hear things uh, over and over again, especially in a particular season of your life. So baptism is the church's sign of the covenantal relationship between God and man. That's something worth writing down. Baptism is the church's sign of the covenantal relationship between God and man. What is it again? The covenantal relationship between God and man. It's the sign of the covenantal relationship between God and man. Now, most of the references to baptism in the New Testament refer to John the Baptist. Uh, or, as the, I think the Greek says, John the Baptizer. And, and who John was, he was Jesus' second cousin through his mother's side of the family. And John the Baptist's ministry started before Jesus' ministry... And it was John the Baptist who baptized Jesus at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, the word for baptism in classical Greek can be, it can indicate immersion. Y'all know what immersion is? What's immersion? Like immersed in water. Like, yes, actually immersing someone fully in the water and pulling them back up again, right? Um, well, actually, I'll, I'll correct myself. I, I said that wrong. Baptism in classical Greek, not in the Bible, just in broader classical Greek, can indicate immersion. Immersion doesn't necessarily mean that you take the thing back out. Immersion can mean you just put it in the water and you leave it there. So, like a pickle, right. Or, or like uh, the, evil, um, uh, the evil people in Noah's day. They were immersed in baptism. They never came back up. They died. Okay. So there you go. So 
The flood. The, the flood was a type of baptism by immersion. Okay? So think about that when, you know, you hear somebody getting baptized by immersion. You can just say, well, I hope, I hope they pick you back up again. <laughs> but, okay. So immersion, uh, bat- baptism, or the baptizo in Greek could mean dipping. That's a good, that's better because you're actually taking them back out. Uh, it could mean pouring. So pouring water on top of them. Or it could mean washing, like a bath, I guess. So it can mean all of those things, okay? Can we put dunk? Uh, sure. I, what is dumping, dunking most like? Dipping, yeah, right? So that's fine. Like an Oreo. Well, I mean, unless you're like dunking someone, like if you're in like the ocean, you just dunk someone and then... Just hold them there. Well, dunking, I think dunking entails putting them back up. Yeah, it usually does, unless it's a basketball. That's true. That's totally different. Yes. That's, yeah, very different. So, but immersion is putting it in, not taking it out. Okay. So, anyway, that's the classical Greek uh, meanings for baptizo. Um, And the only direct indication in the New Testament concerning the mode of baptism. Y'all know what I mean when I say mode? All the, all the, the, uh, the, all the words I just mentioned, immersion, dipping, pouring, washing, those are all modes of baptism. Those are all ways that one could be baptized. And the only indication of the, the mode of baptism that's clear in Scripture, or the most clear, is Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verse 10, where the word translated washings in the King James is used for the different sprinklings we find in the Old Testament. Just as a side note, I don't see immersion here. I don't see dipping. I don't see any of those sorts of things. I see washings or sprinklings so, or, or shower, right? So, okay. So, and look, and now I'm going to go to what I believe is true about baptism. Now, obviously, if, you know, unless y'all have been totally sleeping for the past year in our church, uh, obviously there have been, there's been a lot of controversy as to what baptism is, what it means, and how you do it, right? So I'm going to tell you what I believe about baptism, okay? If you want, uh, if you want more clarification of what your parents believe about it, ask them. But I'm going to tell you, based on my study of Scripture, based on all of the information I've gathered about the subject, uh, what I believe baptism to be, okay? So I believe that baptism is the New Testament's version of circumcision, Baptism is the New Testament's version of circumcision. Now, if we read Genesis 17, that's the chapter where Abraham gets circumcised, we're going to see that Abraham circumcised every male in his household. He baptized, or baptized. See, I always use the words interchangeably. He circumcised every single person in his household, Okay. And we also know, so, so, so let, me, let me back up a little bit. So can we at least agree that there is a category of households receiving signs? Apparently. Apparently, there it is, Genesis 17, okay? So let's keep that in our minds. Uh, and we also know uh, it, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant era, that entire households were baptized, right? Yes, it says it very clearly. Uh, so-and-so 
and his household. Lydia and her household. So we can see that. That's plain in the text. Okay? So that shows us that baptism, like circumcision, is a visible sign of God's covenant with his people. Okay? That's a visible sign of of God's covenant with his people. And the baptized person is visibly placed under the terms of that covenant, which is God's peace treaty. Okay? Visibly placed. Why am I... Why am I putting that adverb in there? Because it's objective. You can see it. Publicly done. Huh? Publicly done. Publicly what? Publicly done. Done to the public to see it. Yeah, exactly. The church witnesses it. It's a witness. It's done. Right? Everybody sees it. Okay? So it's that visible sign. So do we know what's going on in that person's heart? We have a pretty, I mean, a pretty good idea. They're there and they seem to be obeying the Lord and loving the Lord, sure. But we don't have an exact picture of that. But we do have an exact picture of them getting baptized, right? So if someone is baptized and they process, then it's Absolutely, yeah. They're visibly placed under the covenant. Yeah, and that's the sign that they've been put in there, okay? So, so that means as a member of that covenant, that person objectively, whether, they, whether they're elect or not, that person benefits from God's protection. That person openly, but let me say this, if he or she openly acknowledges that if there is any rebellion on his or her part against God and against his law, that rebellion is going to bring judgment. That's what a person uh, adheres to when they're baptized. Even when little babies are baptized, that's what their parents adhere to as their representative. That if this child, being raised in the covenant, uh, openly acknowledges uh, that if there's any rebellion on his or her part, if I rebel against God uh, and against his law, that rebellion is going to be judged. I'm going to receive cursings. Okay? All right. So, so now we have to get something straight here when we talk about this. So the reason why entire households were circumcised in the Old Testament was not because every person in the house was regenerate. Everybody understand that? You ever understand what I mean by regenerate? What do I mean? So I, can un- so I know that you understand me. Christians, that they're born again. Thank you. Yeah, Christians, born. they're outwardly, regardless if they're regenerate, they publicly identify to be Christians. So can we count them as Christians? Yes, we can, regardless if they're regenerate or not. So what I'm saying is, is that the reason entire households are baptized or are circumcised in the Old Testament wasn't because every person in that house was regenerate. That wasn't the basis of their circumcision. No, it was because the head of the household had placed himself under the terms of the covenant. They placed themselves under those terms. And since he was responsible for exercising dominion over the rest of the household, every member had to acknowledge his indirect submission and allegiance to God. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'll say it again. So, <clears throat> since he was responsible, the head of household was responsible for taking dominion over his household, every member had to acknowledge that his father or her father was in sub- submission to God. Okay? So the, God's law reigned in that head of household's home through the head of the household, okay? 
Now, it was a personal covenant with each member, but it was only imposed because of the collective responsibility. That means everybody in the household's responsibility of all its members in the household under the master of the house. Now, we're getting pretty in the weeds here. Does everybody understand what I'm saying here? Spit this back to me in your own words real quick. Jude? They're uh, circumcised only because the head of the household is circumcised? Yes. A Christian? Right. And, but why is that? Because he's their head and the whole household is represented through him? Exactly. Thank you. That's perfect. The whole household is represented through him. So everybody is uh, in the covenant through their covenantal representative. Okay? All right. So, as we've seen, and I think as, well... I don't know if Pastor Brandon mentioned this yesterday or sometime recently. He probably did. Uh, God's treaty, God's covenant, like his word, is a two-edged sword, right? He did. Huh? He said, that in, that, uh, he said it was his word that was a two-edged sword. But even his covenant is a two-edged sword. So one side being blessing, the other side being cursing, right? One side blessing as a result of obedience, the other and to destruction as a result of disobedience and rebellion. And the man under the terms of this treaty, whether he or she is regenerate or not, is sanctified under that covenant, objectively. Okay? What's sanctified mean? Being made holy. Yes? What's that, what, what's that mean? Give it to me in like today's uh, English. Over a process of time, you're being uh, justified, or uh, you're being made better, or being made righteous. Set apart. Set apart. Yeah, set apart. That's right. So... Whether if, if a person is under the terms of this treaty, whether he's regenerate or not, he is set apart. He is set apart from the world. He's set apart from uh, anything outside of the covenant. Now, he may not be born again, but he has been set apart because of God's external relationship with him as a result of his position objectively under that covenant. Now, we're not, you understand something here? We're not looking at people's insides here. We're not looking at this through a spiritual microscope. We're looking at what is objectively here in the physical world, okay? If somebody, uh, you know, swears an oath to be a citizen of the United States, and in, in their hearts they hated the United States, and, but they signed the document saying that they will be faithful and all of that to the United States. Are they a citizen of the United States? Yes, yes they are, even though they may hate their country. They still are. Same thing with this, okay? They're in God's covenant, and they will have blessings if, uh, if their covenant head obeys, if they obey externally even, they'll receive blessings, even though in their hearts they may not be regenerate. Those are two completely separate, different things, okay? Um, and we see examples of this kind of non-regenerating sanctification uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul writes this in verse 14. Uh, actually, he writes uh, about a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. That's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 7. But he has a really uh, interesting point that he's making here. We see sanctification without regeneration uh, for the unbelieving husband. He says this, for the unbelieving husband is made holy. That's the same thing what you said, Lucas. Uh, being sanctified, set apart. Why? It's because of his regeneration. Nope, he said he was unbelieving. What made him holy? Because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife, same thing, is made holy, not because he's regenerate, 
It's because, or she's regenerate, it's because of her husband. Right? Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, am I saying that God automatically regenerates a pagan husband because of his wife's regeneration? Am I saying that? No. Uh, did Paul preach salvation by marriage? No. Obviously not. So what did Paul mean by this? Well, I believe that Paul is saying that this sanctification, this setting apart, is God's way of placing a man or a wife under the benefits of the covenant. And because of that, God is going to treat them differently than those who are under the devil's covenantal administration. And it's the same with their children. He will do that objectively, whether they're regenerate or not. They are objectively holy. They are objectively set apart. And they are singled out by God to be dealt with in a special way, in time, and on earth. Okay? Now, am I saying that children are guaranteed a place in heaven because of their parents' justification by grace through faith? Not necessarily. No, they're not. They're not guaranteed that place in heaven because of their parents' justification. But they are objectively put under the terms of the peace treaty, just like the citizens of Nineveh were when Jonah preached to the king and the king repented. All Jonah says is that the king repented. He didn't say that the rest of the town repented. But was the town saved? Yeah, it was saved. God did not blow them up because of the king. The king was their head of household. The king was their covenantal representative. See, the citizens of Nineveh believed that collective judgment, corporate judgment over the whole city was coming for them. And they all put on their sackcloth and ashes as a sign of humbling themselves. Okay? So that's circumcision. Okay? So you may ask, well, how, how can uh, we guarantee, you know, babies die a lot? Uh, even Christian babies that are born into a Christian family, how do we know that they, they're in heaven? Everybody says they are. How do we know, though? Because they're in the covenant. Can you say they're in the covenant? What would you say? Covenant promises. Okay. What kind of covenant promises? Does God promise to save their children? So he does promise to save their children in some sense, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So he promises to Christian parents that he will not only be a God to them, but a God to their children. Now, let's say a baby, you know, something really unfortunate happens to a little baby, and, you know, they don't have an opportunity to publicly profess their faith. Um, Does that necessarily mean that they don't have faith? No, not necessarily. God regenerated John the Baptist in the womb, right? So there's not that. But we can have that assurance that God does save the children of Christian parents because of the promises that he made. He said, I will be a God to you and to your children. So can we have the guarantee that our children will be with the Lord if they die in infancy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they've been set apart. Because they've been made holy. That's a wonderful thing. Um, and to me, that's it's one of the most beautiful promises of the gospel, not only saving us, but saving our children as well. Um, I know I would be afraid to bring children into this world if I knew that they, there was a chance that they wouldn't be saved. Why even have children? I'm just going to spare them the misery of, of an eternal torment in hell by not having them. And that's not how it works, though. God promises to save them. That's why I can not only have them, I can have lots of them. Because I have the guarantee that the Lord's going to save each and every one of them. This is a good thing. So, 
Do what? Yeah, you can shoot them out as little arrows. Yeah, that's exactly right. Into the world. I know. I thought he was putting a period in the sentence earlier. Then you can shoot them. I'm like, no, no, shoot them out as arrows. <laughs> yeah. Once you're sure they're a Christian, then you just kill them. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you're saved. All right, go to heaven now. No, not really. All right. So let's talk about, so that's circumcision. Um, let me see. Where are we? So I believe that baptism is the New Testament version of circumcision, okay? And a lot of churches believe that. A lot of good churches, uh, or, or I'll say it this way, a lot of them say that, but a lot of them don't believe it in practice, okay? So see, many of these churches don't insist on baptizing every member of a newly converted man's household. That means the wife, the children, and the relatives living under his authority since they also argue that baptism is a sign of regeneration. Baptism is not a sign of regeneration. And what they really believe is that baptism is a sign of the new birth of the Spirit. But here's the thing. Circumcision in the Old Testament wasn't restricted to regenerate people only. No, it was administered to everybody, uh, all of those under the family authority of the head of the household, who was visibly subjecting himself to the covenant. Uh, an entire city-state was circumcised in the Old Testament when the son of the king of a Hivite city wanted to marry Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And the sons of Jacob told the king... Do what? Didn't they lie about circumcising No, they really did. No. Uh, you remember um, one of these, uh, the, the Hivite city, one of the, the sons, I forgot his name, I just read about him the other day too, uh, took Dinah and pretty much raped her. And then the sons of Jacob were angry about that. And then this, the, uh, the son of this king said, I really want to marry this girl, though. I really want her. And they said, well, the sons of Jacob said, well, if you're going to do that, then you need to, she's a part of the covenant, then you need to set yourself apart as a part of this new covenant. You and your entire city. And so they all did that. Because they wanted, because the reason they all did it is because, well, if you do this, then we'll not only give you Dinah, but you, have, you can have the opportunity to marry all of the, 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 the women that are in our family. So you can have an opportunity to get wives for yourselves out of this family. So everybody did that. Uh, and then what ended up happening? They, were all, they, all, they all got the procedure. They were all sore, laying in their beds. And then the sons of Jacob went in town and just killed every single one of them. So they, didn't, they weren't in the position to fight. They just had major surgery done on them. So they weren't getting up to fight them back. So I know it's kind of weird. It's, it's really funny, actually. I mean, imagine this picture. These people are like, you know, sore in their beds. And then the sons of Jacob goes around and slits all their throats. Morning, guys. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, so at any rate, the point I'm mentioning is, is that in the Old Testament, every, even the whole city was going to be circumcised and put under the covenant, okay? So uh, in the New Testament, uh, Paul dealt with the meaning of Abraham's circumcision in Romans 4, verses 11 and 12. We can get more clarity on what circumcision means by what Paul is giving us here in Romans 4. Yes? I'm guessing they didn't have painkillers. Do what? I'm guessing I didn't have painkillers. Uh, not the kind that we're familiar with today. No. Yowch. Yeah. So anyway, so we can figure out just from what Paul is telling us what the meaning of circumcision was. And since cir- baptism is the New Testament form, 
This is giving us a, a, a view of what baptism means. Okay, so Romans 4, 11 and 12, I'll read it. It says, he received the sign of circumcision. He's talking about Abraham. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that, the righteous, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So that's, that's a mouthful. Let me break this down for you. So what, what verse is that? Uh, Romans 4 verses 11 and 12. So Abraham's circumcision was a seal of the faith that he had before he was circumcised. So Abraham had faith. Is it safe to say he was regenerated? Yeah, God only gives faith to regenerated people, right? And so circumcision was a seal of the faith that he had before he was circumcised. Okay, so that's why also we only baptize Obviously, we baptize believers and their children, but we're only going to baptize people who have made a public profession of faith if they're adults or older children, right? We're only going to do that for right now. We're only, only those that are uh, heads of household who have made a public profession of faith. Uh, we're not going to baptize them unless they do that, okay? So this, that's the basis of why we do it that way, Romans 4. And uh, according to Romans 4, it says, we are the spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. Okay? So that's really important. And then Paul wrote some more in Romans 9, verses 7 and 8. He said, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So, who are the children of the promise? Who's that? Yeah, all believers in Christ. That's exactly right. Uh, Galatians 3.16. I'm going to throw a bunch of scriptures at you. 3.16. It says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay, so circumcision was a seal of faith's righteousness for Abraham. Nevertheless, even still, Abraham circumcised his first son. What was his name? Uh, no. no, Abraham, not Adam. Ishmael, right. And who was Ishmael born of? Abraham was dad. Who was mom? Hagar, right. Uh, now, God had promised that the, the child of promise would come through Abraham and Sarah. But instead, Ishmael came through Hagar, Sarah's bondwoman. Uh, and Ish, does that mean Ishmael was a part of the covenant line or not? No. He was not. No. Oh, I know, there's a lot of names and people I'm throwing out there right now. But So Ishmael, even though he was born of Abraham, was not the child of promise, and he wasn't a part of the covenant line. But did Abraham circumcise him? Yes. Yes. And even though he may have demonstrated saving faith, Isaac also did the same thing. He presumably circumcised his twin boys. 
Okay? Who are his twin boys' names? I'm just doing Bible quiz now. Esau and Jacob, right. Even though God said that he hated Esau from the beginning, before he had been born or done anything good or evil. So the main point is, did, did God prescribe circumcision only to those who would profess faith? No. No. So with respect to circumcision... It did serve as a seal of faith for those who believed, but it was also given to infants and household servants who may appear not to believe. So what indication are, are we given in the Bible that baptism could be any different? Is there any explicit New Testament text that tells us that baptism is any different? In the Old Testament, weren't they baptized? Like the, the girls were baptized as well as, and the men were baptized and circumcised? That's not in the Old Testament. That, yeah, that, the baptisms and, and washings and things like that were for other, um, oh, what's the word, uh, ceremonial reasons in the Old Testament. But I, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so, uh, so what indications are we given that, circum, that baptism would be any different than circumcision as it regards all this stuff? I don't see any, okay? Now, it's debatable. This is where the controversy begins. But... Baptism, like circumcision, is a sign of God's covenantal dominion over man. And as the baptized infant grows up under the sign of the covenant, uh, hopefully, well, God does promise to save our children, so why wouldn't we we believe that our children are saved, right? Um, And the only reason I wouldn't think that a child was saved is they make it blatantly obvious that they're not. I hate God. I don't want to be here. You know, they live a life like that, rebelling against their parents, um, those sorts of things. And that happens. Uh, it's, not, it's not a typical thing, but it does happen. But, yes. Uh, the, uh, is, it, is it like only that happens if the parents are negligent? There's, like, there's, there's guarantee there's probably some issue with the way the parents raised like, their child, and the, they didn't stand upon the promises that they were given by God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, in the, where, where it says like the qualifications for being a pastor, if your kids apostatize, they say that you're not worthy. You're not qualified. Yeah, you're, not you're disqualified from the ministry. That's right. So it's, it's kind of your fault. Right. In those cases. Right. Absolutely. It is. It is. Um, but, you know, think about, um, think about Abraham and, or think about uh, Isaac uh, circumcising Esau and Jacob. Now, God said that he hated Esau, right? You think Isaac knew that? Yeah. Well, I mean, God told him. Biddy? When was the first time we hear about God hating Esau? Malachi. Way later. Way, way later did the news come out that God hated Esau. Huh? And then Romans 9, Paul expounds upon that even more and says that God hated Esau. You think Abraham knew that God hated Esau? He had no clue that God hated Esau. And he and Isaac had no clue that God hated Esau. Isaac only Isaac hold on Isaac only knew that Esau wasn't the wasn't going to be the child of promise. It was the the promise Messiah was going to go through Jacob. But that doesn't mean that God hates Esau. So uh, so do you think that Isaac pretty much knew his thought his kids were saved? Did he presume that they were saved? 
Yeah, he had to because God promised that he would save his children. Absolutely. Now, does it, does it happen that God sometimes hates children of believers? Yeah, apparently. apparently. But are we supposed to know that? <laughs> nope. <laughs> unless it's blatantly obvious, unless your kids are just outright heathens and they never come back to faith, then uh, it seems blatantly obvious that uh, we should raise them as if they're Christians because God promised to save them. Okay? And we should baptize them um, as part of the covenant. All right. Good. I went on a rabbit trail there. All right. Um, <clears throat> let me see. All right. Why water baptism? Why use water? Uh, it represents the spirit. Cleanliness. It represents cleansing. It represents, well, the spirit would be more accurately described by air, right? Pneumatology, pneuma, the wind. So, but, but that's good too. So, but water all throughout scripture symbolizes cleansing. So water makes us clean. Would anyone disagree with this? Anybody who's felt cleaner after a bath would not disagree with this. Water makes us clean. Now, it's good to use soap, too, but water does make us clean, right? So it's a good sign pointing to the Lord because it's the Lord who makes us clean, not only on the outside, but on the inside, too. And God said this through the prophet Ezekiel. He said, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And this prophecy was fulfilled with the death and resurrection of Christ. It was fulfilled when the Holy Spirit was sent, and he has placed a new heart in his people. And judgment, uh, and through Jesus, uh, we have been and we will be fully cleansed of all unrighteousness. Amen? That's great news. So that's baptism. Any questions? Now, once again, this is a highly controversial subject. And so some people may not come to the same conclusions that I've come to about baptism. That baptism is uh, the New Testament version of circumcision, and it's not only applied to believers, it's also applied to their children as well, uh, regardless of their age.